and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. Uh, I'm Scott Nye. I'm David Bax. Tyler Smith is on assignment. Uh, when it's just, look, when it's just Scott and David, you know, that means first off, it's about to get crazy, but also it means we're probably going to be wrapping up AFI Fest. <laughs> I think that's the only we one do. we do. Well, it's we did all those filling episodes last year, and maybe I'm thinking about that. Yeah. I know we went on a little run there. Uh, but yeah, it really mostly is AFI Fest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because uh, the TCM one, we have Julie and Kyle. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, the other us. times when it Tyler's out, but I'm here, there's usually a guest. Yeah, yeah, so you're, uh, you and that's I because do... because we secretly hate each other, right? Yeah. That's, that's what I've always assumed. <laughs> well, I mean, I... If I if if there's a conspiracy theory that I secretly hate anyone, it would have to be Tyler because you and I see each other socially outside of the podcast. That's true. Tyler and I only really communicate, um, which which would make it probably think it could make an outside person think like, are these two even friends anymore? But we are. We're like, uh, I mean, not not best friends because my wife is my is my best friend, but uh, we're very good friends. Tyler and I, we just basically only use Battleship Pretension to to stay in touch at this point bound together by this monster you've created it's kind of a tragic story uh yeah but the monster we've created where look we're in the time of year where uh the monster uh, the monster we've created is um paying dividends because i'm getting all kinds of shit in the mail <laughs> dude did you get the freaking bottle of wine yeah, from yeah. uh lost daughter yeah i got a bottle of wine that's in my wine fridge right now it's orange wine very hip is it hip? It, uh, I mean, I don't like orange as a taste, so it doesn't taste, like, it. It doesn't taste oh, okay. like orange. It's just, yeah, it has to do with how they fermented that, uh, the, the, the color of the wine itself comes out orange, but it's not going to taste like orange. It's gotcha. just orange well, colored wine is kind of, uh, I guess it was kind of trendy, but actually probably I'm dating myself. Uh, you know, we, you know, as, as you get older, you realize like trends, it feels like trends come and go faster than they did when you were a kid, but they don't. You just like experience time differently when you're older. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's like the percentage of life theory, right? Like, so at right. this age, yeah. you know, a year is whatever, like a smaller section of our lives than when we right. were teenagers. And yeah. so it's like, well, that's come and gone, whatever. And think of how much worse they'll be in 30 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think about like making fun of like, uh, I guess o- older people for like still using some slang term that's like years out of date. It's like, well, to them, it probably seems still oh, pretty yeah. new because like, because of the percentage of life thing. Um, where did I get? Yeah. I got the, um, got a bottle of wine, um, which I've gotten wine before. Did you get, so if you're on the, this is turning into us like bragging about our, yeah. our swag, but uh, uh, so it sounds like you're on the Netflix mailing list. Did you get the hand of God? box yeah so i still haven't even gone through that that just oh. arrived today and i like saw it on the floor when i got home and i was like that looks like a whole thing and i didn't have time to dig into it well it has another one of these i mean netflix i have so many of these huge books yeah uh, for netflix but the hand of god one also has a massive can- scented candle which um okay uh, yeah so uh <laughs> the only thing i know about the box is that the candle broke in route oh no because um, julie opened it and was like got a box full of glass here oh my gosh um, okay. Well, at least that didn't happen with your lost daughter wine. Uh, that's God, true. I, I can't believe we've like alienated. 
<laughs> all I mean, of our listeners who think we're like braggarts now. Yeah, we always have been. We've always been alienating. That's true. Well, um, yeah, strap in uh, if you're prone to alienation because we're going to talk about obscure world cinema of yeah, the, of the last bunch year. of movies no one else can see right now. <laughs> yeah, including many that you probably haven't heard of. Um, right. So, uh, well, let's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do that in a second. First, uh, I want to tell you, uh, Scott and you, the listeners about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day. I'm literally using them right now. Uh, although now I, I say colorful colors, but I'm using my black pair. My green pair is much, uh, brighter, but this is just a pure black pair, which, uh, fits the music i'm going to recommend today because it's uh, heavy metal i'm going to recommend what i was just listening to uh on a little walk um the new uh new album by a death metal band called broken glass sanctuary oh like your candle Bro- broken glass sanctuary sounds like uh, very peaceful music for a walk i can see why yeah, you were yes. strolling in and taking in the and, night air with it uh the album is called the kingdom below uh it's uh sounds great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price so again go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension that's not just the sound of that first sip of morning joe it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on carvana from the comfort of home that's a good blend it's time to take it easy like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Scott. Yo. Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. We, uh, we are going to do what we normally do, which is talk about the movies alphabetically. Although... We don't necessarily need to do that this year because everything only screened once. Uh, yes, that's true. Although it does make things like you're because you're saying like we could theoretically do this by schedule, which like most years they screen things twice. Like, what does it really mean in a scheduled form? Yeah. But it also does simplify things because like a couple of these I saw at award screenings yeah. or got a yeah. screener link or whatever. So same, same. it's pretty clean. I did notice, however, the uh, the list I sent you was not precisely alphabetical because it took into account an article at the start of a title. So oh, I fixed um, that in the one I sent back to you. Ah, terrific. Yes. When I uh, uh, I got to use a term for my work. Uh, my work world when I sent you the, the list that the, the, the master list was our two lists concatenated. Yeah. I saw that, t- that term and was like, I, I do not care to look this up. Oh, it's a, it's a real term. It means to mix two or more things together in sequence. You know what I mean? To, 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 to make a full sequence out of it. It comes up uh, sometimes in my, in my work and it's a fun word to say. Um, so I wanted to talk about concatenation. It's, it sounds like a witch's curse. It sounds like one of those words like discombobulated that can't be real, yeah. but, it, but it is. But yeah, concatenate. All right. Um, but before we talk about the movies, before we jump into the A's alphabetically, because we don't have any, uh, no movies that start with numbers. Yeah. Um, there's a movie with a number in the title, but it didn't start with it. Didn't uh, start. Uh, that's a little teaser, everybody. Uh, first, I, I guess I just want to talk about, as we usually do, I want to talk about the overall festival experience. But I, I want to start, though, with an asterisk, because... You and I have on this 
you know, this, this podcast, this, this episode of past years, given AFI trouble for some of the, uh, confusing ways that they have run the festival in the past this year, all of their weird rules were for, I think a good reason for, you know, there's, we're still in a pandemic. There the rules that are mostly in place to lessen the chance of a virus spreading at the festival. So yeah, they, they, they are rules that I support, although they made for a, an, sometimes odd festival experience. Yeah. I mean, it was a little tepid, but like on the other hand, like you're assuming whatever rules they had in place before, like existed. I mean, like most of the screenings when it was free anyway, you may recall that in 2019, they did charge for admission um, and pretty much gave like kind of the same experience that I recall from this year, you know, maybe it was a little more bustling because they had more time than more screening and stuff like that. But um, when it was free, they had like a theoretical system where you had to get in line by a certain time and they'd let you in at a certain time. And, you know, not everyone who got a ticket could necessarily get in because it was like a, as soon as the theater fills, that's it situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that didn't always apply. You would often get in line an hour early. Uh, They wouldn't hand out a cue card for you to get back in line until 20 minutes later, at which point, like you're supposed to be back in line 10 minutes after that. Right. They're probably not going to let you in 30 minutes before either. So you just kind of show up and wait and hope and starve. And, you know, it kind of vaguely works out. So at least the pandemic forced their rules to exist. <laughs> I see. I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Because the, 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 this is the only time I've ever been to a, ever been to a film festival that I have a signed seat in. Um, but that was yeah. part of the, like, keeping the capacity at a certain level and, or whatever and, and stuff like that. But although it, they weren't, like... They were in theory selling out theaters, although I don't think almost no screening I went to was actually full. No, I'd be surprised if any screening I went to was half full. Um, uh, Memoria was, I mean, at least the section I was in was pretty packed, but um, you sat in a different section because they were also weirdly like, not only was it assigned seating, they were actually, especially in the larger rooms, enforcing it. Like they had people, I don't know if this is your experience, like you'd walk in and people would be like, what's your seat number? And then like, show you where it was. Like I found if I looked down and walked past, I could get right past those people. <laughs> um, I mean, I often moved seats as soon as the movie began. Cause you know, no one's going to put up a fight once the movie starts. Yeah. Um, but sometimes there'd be like a, like, like you said, a three quarter empty theater and I'd walk in and find, okay, here's my assigned seat right next to like the only other person in the entire row. And I'd be like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to move down a couple. <laughs> Had a couple of those. One guy, uh came in and sat right next to him he's like oh by the way the seat next to you is open if you want to move over um because i bought that seat and my friend isn't going to show up and i was like okay but you know if somebody else shows up on the other seat then i got the same problem being right next to somebody so i'll stick with my seat for now and i think both of us just stuck it out to the bitter end that's cute (laughs) next to each other it was kind of cute and when are you Um, gonna see each other again (laughs) i know i I hope never he seemed very annoying um yeah, I had an, an an annoying guy uh who um look, sometimes at a festival setting, as much as I am an advocate for sitting through the credits, sometimes when you got another movie to get to, you, got you, you know, you, you get up when the when the credits start. And there was a guy who did it in two different screenings, sat in my row. Hmm. Clearly, because it's assigned seating, clearly he had the same idea of like optimal seats as I did, because he kept sure, sitting sure. in my row. And both times when the movie would end, he'd sit there. I'd try to get up. I I try to walk past him. He'd like do the thing of moving his legs, but I don't know if he forgot that he had a backpack 
<laughs> but it happened sure. at two different screenings where his backpack was just like, so I'm yeah. glad you moved your legs, but I still have to do the big, like the big cartoonish yeah. like, step over your backpack. That was your version of, do you remember AFIFS three years ago when the hacking woman kept sitting oh, yeah. next to me? Oh yeah. That was at, um, um, she first sat next to the both of us at, um, uh, what's the Julie Pinoche? I know. I was trying to think too. Uh, is it no- Naomi? Um, now I'm forgetting the director's Kwase, name too. Yeah. No, yeah. No. Um, oh, that's going to bug me. It's a one word title. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She first sat next to you, uh, us for that. And then I remember we were, we were sitting next to each other again for Maya. Yeah. And she came back and she, st- and she started hacking and you immediately just got up in a band. Booked it. <laughs> Good decision because that ended up being one of my favorite movies at the festival. Um, but yeah, this was uh, to go back to the, um, I guess I'm not really that social a person, but I do like uh, the social aspect of, of an AFI or TCM in which I have like people that I see every year. Yeah. And because of the not waiting in line thing, it it, it was, you didn't uh, vision is the name of the movie. Uh, You, uh, you didn't get to like hang out with people really because everyone would just like, just show up right before the movie started. And then as soon as the movie's over, just go somewhere else. Cause there was no like mixing. Yeah, I, I ran into a couple of friends between movies, but like you're usually on the way to something else, especially with reserved seating. Like I didn't leave a lot of time between stuff aside from us having dinner between two movies on Sunday. Like that was by far the most amount of time I had between yeah. movies. Most of the time I was just going from one screen right to the next. Yeah. Yeah. But we, uh, I missed out on one of my, what I, I consider one of my favorite, uh, uh, AFI Fest traditions, which is standing in line and rolling my eyes as Jake Bart holds court. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jake wasn't there at all this year, um, yeah. so there's no there's no court to hold. Sadly. Uh, all right. Did I, I did are there any any other peculiarities about this year's festival? That you well, the only to... thing to me that's peculiar is that, uh, to my recollection, this is the first AFI Fest that was not presented by Audi, and I, I saw Audi's logo or name nowhere in the festival um that's right it's yeah. a breakup for the century as far as i'm concerned as far back as uh, i've been going to afi fest it's been presented by audi yeah uh, hard times that was officially as, as members of the press we were often reminded yeah the official name of the festival was afi fest presented by audi um and we never actually called it that in anything other than a mocking way yeah but uh but yeah i didn't i didn't even notice that um the first thing that came to mind it was presented by some guy did you notice that in the like pre-movie like scrolling slideshow there's like some guy who's like festival underwriter and he must have written quite the check no my um my my festival uh tradition is i will watch the opening bumper exactly once and then every other screening i'm just going to look at my phone (laughs) yeah this wasn't even in the bumper this was just like the slideshow at the beginning when you're sitting away for the movie to start and it's like read variety yeah. Yeah. Read, do, do read variety. Is it, do we, I don't know if I actually believe that. Uh, but I mean, if you want to see who's helming the next odor, that's going to do Bafo BO, um, you want to read variety for that. Absolutely. They start <laughs> right. right that way. Uh, let's, let's jump into, um, jump into the movies and, and, and let's start with, uh, Ahed's Knee, directed by... I know you have it in front of you. That's why I'm asking. Uh, Nadav Lapid is how I'm going to choose to pronounce it. Um, yeah, who made... Uh, I guess the kindergarten teacher was the one that first 
where I first heard of him, although I never saw that. I did see the unfortunate American remake of The Kindergarten Teacher. Um, but then he made, uh, God, what I want to say, Synonyms? Synonyms, yeah. And he made Policeman before that, which I didn't see, but which I think okay. gained him like a decent amount of notoriety. Yeah, Kindergarten Teacher was the first movie of his that I saw. I was pretty instantly impressed. I loved Synonyms. Um, yeah, Synonyms is good. I liked that. I, I, I dug Ah as a knee. I don't know how you felt about it, but... Um, I was... I would say... If you had asked me right after the screening, I probably would have been more sour on it because I think I, I got um, kind of turned off by the histrionics of the, of the climax of the movie. Oh yeah. Uh, now that I have there. some time. Yeah. Now I've had some time away from it and I'm thinking of it as a, as a whole. Um, I, I still, I liked it a lot. I, I, I still think it gets a, a little bit um exhausting uh sure <laughs> uh, near the end um but uh it's a story of a uh a an israeli filmmaker who has traveled to a small town in the israeli desert because the local cultural center at the library is going to be screening one of his movies so he's going to host the screening and do a q a uh, uh afterwards and um it's mostly it's mostly him but a, a lot of the scenes are also kind of like a two-hander between him and the deputy minister of the, uh, the cultural deputy minister who's, who's running this greeting. Uh, she's played by, uh, Noor Fibak. And, uh, let me tell you something, Scott, I, I was crushing hard. She's oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, although she has this great choice that I'm sure was a combination of her and Lapid choosing it where she's like always smiling in, an increasingly kind of creepy way because she's like supposed to be the face of the Israeli government and their cultural right. outreach center and all that. And so she's essentially like a public relations person. Um, but like, he's just like this completely sour, miserable guy who's just pissed off at Israel about everything much as, you know, anyone who's seen his films or read interviews with him as uh, Lapid himself. Um, and the two, it's a good chaotic energy because he is completely doesn't even really want to be there, but recognizes that like, this is the people he's trying to reach with his message about uh, uh, opening their eyes to how terrible the Israeli government is. And she like kind of agrees with him, but is happy to go along with the system because it's more convenient. And she likes her position, whatever other various reasons people tend to go along with terrible governments. Um, but the fact that she's like always trying to put a sunny face on whatever horrible shit he's outing moment is a pretty good dynamic uh yeah it's a it's a fun dynamic between them it's also um uh the 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 kind of um uh erratic and sometimes arch filmmaking choices of nadal lapid that were definitely present in synonyms i liked them here too i think the um the the opening motorcycle scene in the rain oh is, yeah was so invigorating yeah there's um, so many like the places he chooses to put the camera are unusual, certainly for like the festival set of movies, which, you know, it's getting better, but it was reaching a point a couple of years ago where it's like how many more locked off shots of single scenes can we see over and over again? Give me some visual dynamic to look at. And he's like all the visual dynamic, you know, the closer comparisons would be like Jean Collet Serra or something who at least is aided by CGI to get the camera in all these weird positions all over the place. But he pulls off shots here that like, I don't even know how they work. Like there's one in a, a car where the camera's spinning like 360 degrees, but yeah. not in like a robotic way. It seems like someone's holding it, but I also don't know how someone's contorting themselves to do that. And so yeah. there's all these like physical impossibility things that I can't quite figure out, but which really 
lend an invigorating sense and which mirror like a lot of the um, rather confrontational um, viewpoints that he's often espoused in his films. It really kind of captures that manic psychological energy. Yeah. I, I especially liked the, um, um, and this is what I was talking about when I, when I, I used the word arch, cause this could maybe turn people off, but there's a part where she's just talking about her life story and he keeps looking at her and then out the window and yeah. the camera just becomes his point of view, just like swinging wildly <laughs> from one thing to the, uh, uh to the other. I, I thought that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. So, uh, mostly like that. I, I still think, um, it, what it swung for at the end, I don't think it entirely. Um, yeah, it's definitely a big land, land. swing. Um, yeah. He apparently wrote this in like 18 days, which like with his predilections is maybe, you know, not necessarily the best dramatic choice, if you like. But if you uh, get turned on by very instinctual cinema, this is a very yeah. much a work of instinct. And I, I kind of dig that sometimes. It'll be out next year from uh, Kino Lorber. All right. So should we move on to Cleo Bernard's Ali and Ava? Yeah, uh, which I kind of liked okay until the ending I thought was really horrible and then it pretty much turned me off the whole movie. Um, I don't remember the ending being particularly horrible, but I wasn't really into the movie very much. (laughs) That's because Uh, the ending is particularly nothing. So it's about these two middle-aged people. uh, You may believe it or not, their names are Ali and Ava, um, who she's like a... She's not a teacher. She clarifies that many times she's like yeah, a, a teacher's assistant teacher's assistant at like a kindergarten or something um his kid goes there and so well, actually his he's right, a yeah, landlord it's and it's his tenant's kid but he's yes. like friends with his tenant so he like picks up his friend slash tenant's daughter yeah so he runs into her there and they're both vaguely lonely middle-aged people for different very distinct reasons but um kind of fall into a sort of friendship that turns into a sort of romance um all of that i thought worked decently well what turned me off about the ending is as soon as they start fighting the film just devolves into montages that avoids actually dramatizing their fights and then also like cuts out any dialogue about their inevitable reunion <laughs> like i hate to give away the end of the film but the last 20 minutes there's there's nothing to it there, it's just like a series of like they made this decision structurally but didn't fleshed out beyond the outline yeah i um cleo bernard made the arbor which i didn't see but it's like um, i love the arbor yeah uh, but i saw the selfish giant is that what it's called yeah i didn't um, see that but that I, one's that one's great and, uh, okay. and and i i think given what i understand about the arbor and what i've seen about the selfish giant i was kind of let down by how just normal and expected this <laughs> sure. seemed as a, as as a movie it, it felt like she was going for something more accessible or commercial maybe uh, in, in this romance, but it ends up just being interchangeable with a lot of other movies. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like, yeah, the passion just wasn't there as much for trying to make yeah. a more normal movie. Um, but I'll, I'll call it that uh, Ali's wife from whom he is separated is played by uh, Elora Torchia, who's um so hot right now um she's i don't think i know her at all uh she was in midsummer she's um Mm. one of the other i don't know i don't know if i want to like spoil midsummer for people but you're like there's our group of like americans and there's like the other like the british couple i don't remember them yeah yeah one of them uh she's in in the earth which i that came out right 
I saw it through Sundance this year, the Ben Wheatley movie in the earth. I don't I think, think that came actually, out. Oh, I thought it came out. Um, uh, and then she was also in a, a terrible movie called crisis uh, earlier this year, but um, she seems to be popping up in a lot of stuff. So keep uh, an eye on Ella Tor- Laura Torchia. She's going to be in some TV series. It looks like the nevers or is she no. Oh yeah. Actually that too. Also infinity oh, with an eye at the end. Like the car? I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe In the Earth did come out. If I was the Ben Wheatley joint. I said Ben Wheatley. Well, right. let's I not get listen. hung up on this. Yeah. Um, all right. So we were both uh, equally kind of yeah. uh, let down, I guess, by Eliana Ava. But uh, not so, I don't think, by Andrea Arnold's Cow. No, I one thought two, it was great. Yeah, one of two documentaries that I, that I saw at this year's uh, festival and was... Uh, yeah, absolutely in, in love with it's, um, it follows a farm cow on a British farm, <clears throat> judging by the accents of the farmers, um, from, wouldn't that be something if it wasn't in Britain? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from, from birth to death. Um, I don't know how long did she, I didn't read about the making of the movie. Is it actually the same cow the whole time or is she following just the life of a cow? Um, I think it's the same cow okay. the whole time but i don't know yeah I, I can't remember the details because i read up a bit about the film but it was also like during the last day of the festival and i was beat tired so i uh my recollection isn't great but yeah th- that's the essential idea of it. it but it was only filmed over like 18 months so it might it might be that there was the same cow we see at the beginning giving birth but not the one being born oh, okay I, I lost track a little bit there but we essentially follow the life of a farm cow yeah yeah for sure um which uh, again, speaking of whether or not we want to spoil the endings, I think, you know, the movie ends the way that pretty much any honest movie about the life of a farm animal is going to end. Yeah. I Um, mean, I think it's fair to note in case you are, you know, on the fence about seeing the life of a cow on a farm and knowing how that life ends. And do you want to see that in a movie? Yes, it does that thing. Yeah. I, I would say mercifully for both us and the cow, it happens very quickly. Sure. Um, but that was, uh, it was shocking, but the, 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 the movie is, it just, the, the camera is just always sort of at cow level, cow level, cow high level. Like when they're, when they're smaller, when it's smaller, when it's big, there's, there's no dialogue in the movie. We hear incidental yeah, or what it seems like incidental. I actually think there's a lot of purpose in what she lets us hear, okay. um, uh, personally, because I, um, I feel like this is at the risk of sounding like I'm reaching for wokeness. This is a very feminist movie because it's yeah, about, it's, in, it's it, interesting because it, she has talked about how people have come up to her with all these interpretations about like what she's intending with the movie and feminism is for sure. One of them, because I mean, so much of what you overhear is about that. Like this cow exists as a female cow. I don't know. Is that redundant? Cause like a bowl. I think it's redundant. Okay. So as a cow, she exists to create more cows for this, this farm. When she has health checkups, it's not, is she healthy and happy? Is, is this cow going to be well? It's, is this cow able to continue giving birth? Um, and milking. Don't leave out the milk. Uh, yeah. Let's not, yeah. Let's not forget the, the, uh, the, the milking. So I think there, uh, there is, I think a, a, a sadness to that narrow definition of what a cow, this cow's purpose in life is that struck me as, as a feminist view. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I am reticent to make those comparisons only because I'm reticent to draw any comparison between human women and cows. Um, but uh, the, <laughs> the fact that she repeated this interpretation as something other people have come up to her and said, I, you know, it's obviously something that people are gathering from the movie and which I did definitely think about. I mean, I think in general, the movie's best strength is that it isn't didactic about what it's trying to do. You can totally yeah. draw whatever conclusion from it. You can draw that. You can definitely draw um, anger towards the farming industry um, or you can draw that it's cool to watch cows walk around. Like there's a lot of just cool cow shit happening during the movie. And there's cute cow shit too. Super cute cow shit. Um, and the cows like sometimes seem to know there's a camera there, but not really know, of course, like what's going on. They'll like buck the camera occasionally. And like, there's a great yeah. interaction between the cows and the camera. And it's just there's really, that one long shot of the camera cow just like staring at the camera and yeah. occasionally like mooing. Like, terrific. what's it trying to say? Yeah. Go away? Or? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not content with the camera being there yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just like really beautiful looking. I mean, the milking scenes stood out to me because they're put on this, like, I don't know why they need to be put on this giant, like turnstile. That's like a slow motion, like those rides you go on in the uh, carnival where they like, hold you against the wall. It seemed like slow motion kind of carnival ride where they just like rotate the cows while they're being milked. Um, but it was like strangely hypnotic to watch and like, they have this like pop music blaring blaring through that's, the farm. That's what I, I wanted to know. Like, what is this farm where they all <laughs> listen to like, like, like twenty late twenty tens indie pop? <laughs> like, no, it it's a very great. specific vibe that they're that they're playing. But maybe it's like it's chill, and maybe the um, the turning thing is meant to like calm. Maybe it calms totally. the cows somehow. It might very well do that. Uh, yeah. you would think with but how ruthless the farming industry is they wouldn't spend a bunch of money to create this big motorized thing just to like soothe the the cows they probably just like screw you cows but, but um, maybe they get more or better milk if the cows are that's true that that's that's what it, you know that, that's what the, it's really about uh, uh yeah uh, I mean, it, oh, it kind of called to mind the way pop music is kind of used as a good juxtaposition in american honey her last feature um which is very much about like the way people use pop music to try to make their lives seem more glamorous or like be more aspirational about the nature of their lives. They use these millionaires lyrics about how awesome it is to hop around and party as just like, and it, not really excuse to do nothing with their lives, but like make them feel better about the fact that they have no direction. Um, you know, I don't think the cow has as much agency necessarily, but I think there's a similar kind of juxtaposition of this, like really upbeat pop music with the very ordinary uh, life a cow has to go through. Um, I want to return to something you said before we move on about, uh, sure. uh, and this isn't, this is an actual like insight, not just me defending myself. When you, when you talked about the idea of you didn't want to, you don't want to like reduce women to like, like the level of cows. I think what this movie does is it elevates the life of a cow to be something human. I think by, by identifying so closely with the cow over the people that it's, uh, uh, it's not reducing humans. It's elevating Bovine yeah, no, that, that's, and that's a especially a fair point when you get to like the farmers doing really invasive inspections of the cows like yeah. cavity and I, I i guess i don't know the anatomy choices but i haven't guessed i think it's called a vagina considered to have a vagina yeah yeah um and they're just like shoving the hand in there and the cow's just sitting there yeah you know you have to figure out they're thinking something yeah um Last thing, uh, the easy comparison that uh, I heard multiple people make 
um, to, uh, is to uh, Gunda, uh, Victor Kostopovsky. Yeah, which I didn't which, see. Um, uh, I, 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 I liked Gunda, but this is a and it's it, yeah, in many like servicey ways, it is very similar. That was a movie about uh, a pig, and also had some cows and chickens, but mostly about a pig who has a a litter of piglets or whatever you call them um and it's life but the the um stylistic the aesthetic approach is 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 very different um cow is uh i mean i mentioned there's the one shot of the cow just like looking at the camera but the, the camera is very active like keeping up with the with the cows all the yeah, time sure. whereas gunda is more the thing you were talking about before the camera is often very still it's in black and white it's like um it's it, it's more uh deterministically composed um, uh, images, which is its own kind of beauty and actually leads to its own kind of uh, humor too. Um, but uh, just wanted to say, yeah, you're going to hear it compared to, to Gunda. I understand why, but it's not, um, it's not a one-to-one. Why don't you, uh, I'm going to shut up for a bit while you talk about, yeah, I got a um, real string of movies. You're done. Three movies in a row. Yeah. All right. Uh, so next is uh Ryusuke's Hamaguchi's uh, Drive My Car, which is the second film he released this year. Um, Hamaguchi is really well-renowned in sort of similar film circles that I travel in. Uh, for a lot of people, he's one of the, the major working directors. I have, have liked his films. I haven't really found them to be hugely significant works. I think the one of the more interesting things about him anyway, I mean, he's, he's a solid dramatist. He's really good with actors. And there's a lot to appreciate in his films. Um, the weirdest thing about him to me is that he makes like films of wildly varying lengths. So the first film that kind of people seem to really take notice of him for was uh, Happy Hour, which was like five and a half hours long. And then his next movie, Asako One and Two, which was really, really strong movie. Yeah, you know, normal, normal two hour movie. Okay, nothing wrong there. And then the film he released this year before Drive My Car, um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, was a two hour movie built up of three 40 minute stories like kind of short films within their kind of united by common themes and then drive my car is a single story, but three hours long. Um, so yeah, I was going to say, I have a, I have a screener link for drive my car. And I was like, do you think I, can I do this before we record the episode? No, I don't have no. that kind of time. No, that's ridiculous. Um, yeah. So he has a very nimble approach to storytelling that I really appreciate where he, you know, I'm sure he's doing some manner of editing or whatever along the way and trimming his stories as need be, but he does seem to be open to the idea that different stories need different lengths, um, which is really uh, invigorating in its own way. Uh, so Drive My Car is, it's tough to get into the premise. So I, I thought about this thing that Paul Thomas Anderson said about Magnolia, where he's like, making three-hour movies is great because you can spend the first hour getting to know the characters and then you can spend the rest of the time doing the actual like storytelling and plotting and stuff. Uh, Drive My Car, the premise of the film doesn't start until I'd say about 45 minutes into the film. Um, and so I don't want to you know, give away everything that leads to it, but essentially it ends up revolving around a uh, theater actor um, who got it, who was invited to direct a play. And I guess the way the film kind of addressed this made it seem more pretty common in Japan where They'll bring in actors from all over various parts of Asia who speak various languages. You know, there's a mix here of Japanese, Korean, um, Mandarin, and there's one woman who just speaks in sign language. But they have an industry built up around this where they just project subtitles in pretty much all these languages as they're performing the play. Um, so he's directing a play in that format with all these actors with whom he doesn't necessarily share a common language 
and has to kind of put this production together in the midst of which, and this is the film's most like contrived thing, but which serves a definite dramatic purpose where the festival has essentially disallowed their visiting artists from driving themselves. They have to utilize this uh, driver that they hire uh, to drive the director's car. Hence the title of the film, Drive My Car. Um, And so a lot of it is also built around the relationship he builds up with this driver. And, you know, from this kind of broad description, it kind of sounds like a fairly generic, everyone learns to love each other a little bit more along the way. But because he has all this time to build out and because we spend so much of the prologue learning about the circumstances that led him to directing this play, there's a really deep investment in every step of the process, both uh, professionally in terms of like how you put together a theater production with actors of so many different backgrounds, um, the various steps along the way of just putting together any theatrical production and then just spending time with the two of them driving around, um, mostly not doing anything terribly significant. He tends to prefer his time driving to just recite lines. And even though he's the director, you know, he wants to kind of have a familiarity with the play. So um, a lot of it is just built through repetition, through uh, revisiting the same sort of scenes over and over again and kind of what they draw out of the characters there. Um, I thought, so yeah, I thought it was a, a very strong film, but I, I'm looking forward to actually at least revisiting in part. Um, I mentioned this to you and between screenings that I was extremely tired while watching the film. Um, so there were some parts that I was a little hazy on, but on the whole, I was, I was very, uh, very impressed with it. All right. Keep going. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I was just taking a breath. Take it easy there. Oh, yeah. Then, uh, yeah. The, okay. <laughs> Uh, I will give you the chance to take a drink of water. I'll say the next movie you're on my list was on my must see list, except on the final day of the festival, the scheduling of the festival was such that like there were three must sees that I could only make. I could only make it either to one of them or to the other two. And I chose the one. Yeah. So the girl in the spider um, was my second uh, biggest priority to see at the festival. And it was screening at a time that got out five minutes before my highest priority of the festival memoria. So it was a real, uh, real tough choice, but at the oh, end, so I, I could have made it. Yeah. But they also like, this is what I didn't know going in is they like had a rule theoretically where you had to be in your seat 15 minutes before the screening yeah. started or they make it for your ticket. Little did I know no one was showing up to these screenings anyway, and it would have been a cinch to get in. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, I did not decide to take the risk. And I just emailed the distributor Cinema Guild um, to, oh, I've been forgetting to announce when it is being released. Cow is coming out through IFC next year. Drive My Car is from Jan's Films uh, in a couple of weeks, in fact. Um, so I just emailed uh, for The Girl on the Spider. I emailed Cinema Guild and was like, hey, I'm covering AFI Fest. I'm not sure I can quite make the screening, but I'd love to see the film. And uh, there are good people over there. So they obliged with the link. Um, Great. I This is directed by... Uh, Ramon Zerker, I'm going to say it's German. So that sounds Germanish. And his brother, Sylvan Zerker, um, the team, well, they were the team behind The Strange Low Cat, which is a movie from several years ago. But I think that was only credited to Ramon. I think Sylvan was just a producer on that. And maybe it's a Coen Brothers situation where they're like, oh, we'll just finally give both credit. Um, but I was really, really big into The Strange Low Cat. And so I was very excited for this. And it, it did not disappoint at all. It's about two women, uh, Mara and Lisa who, you know, at the start of the film, Lisa is moving into a new apartment and much of the film is just about the process of her moving out from living with Mara and into this new apartment. We kind of understand the nature of their relationship 
but not entirely. It seems like there is probably a romantic relationship going on there. They also have another roommate that they lived with, and we're not entirely sure why Lisa is moving out. Only that there's clearly not enough bad blood that Mara is completely absent. She's helping with the process and she's mostly friendly, although we sense, you know, a degree of bad blood, which like if they were just friends would be understandable. You know, it's never easy when one person decides to leave a roommate situation. There's always some sort of tension around that kind of situation. But if it is romantic, then why is Mara still around? All of these sorts of questions are raised by sort of the nature, the aesthetic nature of the film, which focuses on sort of minute moments that don't really, that kind of explicates, explains the situation, but don't really expound on it or clarify things, but kind of add up to a general portrait. It's really as close as I've seen any film come. And this was true of Strange Look as well as kind of surrounding a uh, plot rather than telling it. Um, both the films are kind of as close as I've seen come to like depicting the feeling of looking at a strong painting or something where you have all these various elements that are adding up to a sense of a story or a sense of a situation, but which is not uh, clarified within the film. And it's really fascinating to watch. It's really invigorating. It's really funny. It's really beautifully shot. Um, Strongly uncomfortable sense of humor where like, um, people get weirdly confrontational at times. Um, there's, there's a woman who they know socially is not one of the roommates, but she has like a piercing in kind of her chin area. And they're like, Hey, can you squirt wine through that hole in your chin? <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> later in the film, she does. And it's uh, kind of gross to watch. Um, so there's, yeah, it, it does strongly use bodies in very striking aesthetic ways. There's another part where just suddenly there's a, woman otherwise nude wearing a motorcycle helmet which is a very striking image um and sort of yeah these weird things that kind of um surround this emotion of feeling like you're being left behind the title is eventually i think overly explicated in kind of a final monologue that really clarifies all these themes in the film but it, it, by that point it was certainly hard to hold it against it is really uh lovely and uh and for a film with such a strong aesthetic uh design and i'll get to a film later that isn't uh as invigorating in the sense because it it doesn't do what the girl the spider does which is really invest in its performances so you you get the sense that the actors understand their characters understand their place within the story and are investing the same level of energy within it as if they had like great long monologues about everything they're feeling you know they can convey a lot through the glances that they're given and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm, I was really into the movie and it'll come out next year through cinema guild. Next up. Uh, is, I don't have anything to add here to give you a break. So that's fine. I can, okay. I can roll. Uh, I was just taking a breath. Uh, next up is Audrey Duan's happening, which I, I didn't even know anything about until like a month or two ago when it showed at some other foreign film festival, but which instantly shot up to the top of my must see list. Um, Partially because it takes place in 1960s France, where, you know, I would love to live one day. I've learned nothing from such films as Last Night in Soho. I still want to go to the past. Um, But it's about a uh, young woman named Anne who is in college. I believe her goal to start a film is to eventually become a teacher, which was, you know, for early 1960s culture for young feminists was a strong career choice um, to go into where they could still develop some independence, develop kind of a life of the mind, um, but have a roadmap to some sort of uh, economic future independent of marriage. Um, 
and she suddenly discovers that she's pregnant and knows immediately you know the scene where she finds out she's with a doctor and he's like uh inform you that you're pregnant or whatever and she almost immediately says you need to take care of this which you know in 1960s parlance is i need an abortion but because it's 1960s literally you could get arrested for even saying the word or having if you're proved to have taken part in any kind of planning that eventually leads to an abortion um there there would be legal consequences um and which the film is both very clear about in the dialogue sense but also very clear about emotionally um you sometimes get the sense with stories you read sometimes about abortion before you know most of the western world legalized it um that like everybody knew some back alley abortionist or some great doctor who took care of patients on the side and there's always some connection what happening does really well is very much clarify that for a lot of women they did not know who to ask had no idea what to do and were very quickly running out of time you know there's only so much time physically where you can get this done and you know especially for a young woman like Anne, who's in college and you know doesn't entirely have her life together a lot of time when you're young is spent hoping problems will just go away but this is definitely a problem that's not going to go away and just gets worse and worse and it really i think much more so than almost any period piece i've seen before gives a sense of what it is to be alive then there's no kind of glamour to its portrait of the 1960s you know it's not obsessed with the fashions or the music or how groovy the scene was or whatever it's it's shot like a dardenne brothers movie basically where it's very much locked on her anything that's going on around her you know if she's out at a bar and music's playing or she's wearing a particularly cute outfit or whatever is very much incidental to the story. It's not about the period details. The period is there to uh, make clear how many barriers she had to face and how impossible the task of getting an abortion at the time very much was for a lot of young women and very much locks you into that emotionally. I mean, it is like really uncomfortable and frequently in kind of a body horror way, kind of horrifying to watch as you anticipate um, the consequences of what she is going through and even the consequences of, you know, quote unquote, taking care of it. Um, There's, you know, there's no, even if you can find somebody, there's no kind of clean, easy method to doing so. And there's a lot of complications that come with uh, obtaining an illegal abortion and, the film is not as I think punishing in that sense as something like four months, three weeks and two days mm-hmm. um, in that she finds, you know, a sympathetic doctor eventually. And even the doctors she speaks to along the way who are not going to help her at all because of the consequences or because they're morally opposed to it. You know, one of the doctors mentions that almost all doctors in general are genuinely opposed to abortion at the time. Um, they all understand where she's coming from. And they understand that it's a difficult place young women are in, but it's not going to help her. Um, And so even that becomes a a hurdle for her to find where like even the people she tries to talk to her friends even are like, sure, that's rough. There's no way I'm going to help you with this. Um, So watching kind of the walls close in around her is really Audrey Devon does a really great job of kind of conveying the mental state of that. I think keeping the camera locked in on her and not giving her many breaks along the way really kind of clarifies it. And beyond it's kind of the political import or social political import of showing these kind of stories. It's just really a tense, emotional, draining 
experience, which I know doesn't sound like a strong recommendation, but you know, it makes for a really good film that's coming out next year through IFC. Uh, all right. Now I get to, um, talk for a little bit. Um, <clears throat> one of the, I, I hesitate to call it a discovery because of, you know, nepotism reasons, but, um, the debut, the directorial debut of Jafar Panahi's son, Panapanahi's, uh, uh, Panahi is, uh, called hit the road. And then like, uh, like I, I was saying, there's a part of me that like, didn't want to like this because I don't like the idea of like a privileged kid just being great just because he's, he's privileged i mean but, given uh, the circumstances of jafar panahi's um professional life i'm not sure how privileged a position that necessarily would be right i see what you're saying yes that's a good that's a good point so uh, but um i am uh so i am somewhat uh, uh annoyed to report that hit the road is fantastic one of my favorite films that i saw at at the festival and also very much not he's not like doing a riff on his dad's thing. It's, he's, he's got his own, his own thing. Um, I mean, Jafar, Jafar Panahi's movies are often, there's a, there's a, there's comedy in them, but this one is nearly like a road trip comedy, but with a bit of, um, mystery, potentially something sort of mystical or supernatural. We don't, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but you basically got a, a family, the, the, the married couple are sort of late middle age. They have an older son, He's like in his twenties and they have a much younger son and they also have a sick dog, uh, who's in the back. Um, and they're driving across Iran to something you, you pick up clues along the way about where they're going. But even at the end of the movie, it's not, it's never entirely made clear, like where they were going and why they were going there. Um, but they, uh, they, they just, uh, uh, bicker a lot <laughs> along the way. The, young kid is very annoying, but in a way that Panapanahi and, and the young actors, uh, named, uh, Ryan Sarlacc, um, uh, are very good at making enjoyable for the audience, even as the parents are annoyed by him. He's, he's, he's very funny. Um, and yeah, there's, there's just a lot of shenanigans with the sick dog and they, you know, they're leaking fluid out of the car at one point. It, it, the, the, the father who's, uh, Hassan Majuni has an incredibly dry sense of humor. Like that, that, that sort of like funny old guy who's just like seen it all and is, um, sure. Not, we love that guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, um, uh, never too impressed buy anything um always like on the verge of being annoyed but it's weirdly like charming and funny the entire time uh but there, like i said there's also this sense of mystery and also a very sweet sense of 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 family and uh and 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 love for one another uh it, it's yeah certainly the I, I have to look at my list i think certainly the funniest movie that i saw at AFI and, uh, one of the most moving, I can't, uh, recommend it highly enough. I didn't do the, I'm a bad podcaster. I didn't do the, the homework on when is this movie coming out? Uh, I mean, I, I, not a lot of these don't have release dates. This is being distributed by Kino Lorber. I always assume that if it's not coming out in the next couple of weeks, it's coming out next year, which is generally okay. the case. Yeah. So check out hit the road next year. And then I'll move on to uh, Huda's Salon, which is a um, uh, a Palestinian 
sort of a thriller, I guess, based on reportedly based on, 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 on real, uh, events. Um, it is a very tense and sometimes exciting movie, but it also is, um, one of its two it has two sort of storylines that split that I'll, I'll get to in a second. Uh, and one of those two modes is a little too talky for me. Um, and I also think that there's, there's a, there's a fine line, I think between being like, uh, this is a being like a realist portrayal of what it is to live under Israeli occupation or something like that. And just being like, uh, looking for points by being overly bleak or pessimistic or cynical. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? So I yeah. think by the end of the movie, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm super bummed out by this movie. I'm not sure that I have gained much from it other than like, yeah, you effectively bummed me out, but when it's working in its, so, so the, the, the premise is that there's a, um, uh, a young, uh, woman, a, a mother of an infant and she's, um, um, doesn't have a great relationship with her husband and she's taught, she's getting her haircut. The opening scene is all one take of her, uh, at the hair salon, you know, moving from the sink to the dryer to getting a haircut. And the whole time she's just talking about her, um, uh, her shitty husband or whatever. And then Huda, the hair, the hairdresser says like, Hey, you want a cup of tea? And, uh, turns out she's put something in the tea. She ends up taking some compromising photos and then, says now i'm going to share these photos with your family unless you help me um i'm a spy for the israel israeli uh, secret service and you have to help me um and that's that that's where things start off i won't go it um it, it very quickly like raises the stakes even higher than that but i won't go uh in into into how um it's mostly it is a um a it is this woman whose name I've now, uh, forgotten, um, trying to get out of doing this and not get killed. But the other half of the story is Huda, the existing, uh, spy, um, being interrogated by a member of the Palestinian resistance. And it's just very talky and very like, here's, you know, what, uh, we're trying to say with this about like, um, Palestinian sort of like yeah, the other Palestinian resistance is um, on the side of good, but also does a lot of awful shit. Like, and like, what are you, what are you compromising? What are you losing of your soul? Especially when the people you're doing the awful shit to are not the Israelis, they're your fellow Palestinians. Sure. Um, but again, that's all just so laid out. I think <laughs> in, in terms of um, more, uh, organic sort of uh, arguments the movie makes i would say the idea that um it, it, allegiance like to palestine is more at least in the movie more the realm of men whereas women in a, a, a culture that is not entirely open and free uh, for, for women are like they're essentially occupied anyway you know, and, and yeah. so they're, they're, um, they might have been slightly different, different, uh, opinions on, uh, on the matter <laughs> that, that, that stuff comes across, I think a, a bit more organically, like I said, but, uh, the movie, I can't, uh, I, I can't really re recommend it. I was going to say 
Honey Abu Asad directed it. Um, who did, um, it was like, uh, Omar and paradise now, but he also made, um, his, he made his play at being a Hollywood director with the, the mountain between us, which was, uh, not very successful, but maybe he should, instead of making a, uh, goopy romantic drama, maybe he should <laughs> just make a pure like thriller because sure. the thriller parts of this are what works. Um, and it does zoom by at least at a, at a brisk, like 95 minutes. So yeah, I can't fully recommend, but not a disaster either. Let's move There's on to, yeah, <laughs> let's move on to a movie that, uh, you liked more than I did, which, uh, is not saying much. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, King Richard is the film in question. It is about, uh, Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams, who, as we all know, uh, was weirdly obsessed with getting his daughters to feed gigantic ten stars and actually succeeded. Um, I, I, I think for those who are caught up in the relationship between the film and its real life counterparts, I understand the reservations about it. Um, I, I don't think it's a great film or anything. I just think it's an effective piece of drama. If you like watching movies about guys repeatedly saying, you just watch, I'm going to be right. And then them being right. Um, it, yeah, it, I don't it, know. Uh, Cause I see what you're saying. Cause I also, I'm, I am one of those people who can't entirely separate it from my real life opinion on, sure. on Richard Williams, but also I think just as drama, what you just described is not dramatic to me. Oh, I'm not saying it's dramatic. I'm just saying like every now and again, I like watching a movie like that. That's really, you know, it's got <laughs> some very superficial pleasures. It hits the right buttons. Um, I think it's, I think it's pretty well acted by Will Smith and especially Andrew New Ellis, who plays his wife. Um, I think the film draws out their relationship pretty well, especially to the point where like the cl big climactic tennis match, he's not even sitting with the family. And by that point in the film, there's a very good reason for that. And which the film doesn't overly dwell on. It's just like, yeah, this isn't the time in their lives where they're going to be super connected. <laughs> he's uh, kind of cut himself off in certain ways. Um, and also the, the tennis is actually filmed pretty well, which is really rare for movies because it's hard to find people who can act and play tennis. So usually you have to do yeah. the uh, battle of the sexes thing. We have like this extreme overhead shot where you can never tell who's playing tennis. Um, yeah. And it's the most boring thing in the world, but yeah, I actually, I want to call out my favorite, shot or shots in the movie um at the beginning of the climactic match robert ellswood is the cinematographer the uh and it's it's venus this the movie is much more about venus than serena yes, I know, for sure i don't really follow tennis so i know i know serena more because i think she went on to more but venus is older and was famous first right so the movie is much more about venus than serena um so uh the camera is like i'm guessing on just rails on a, on a track behind venus's opponent and the camera is just like sliding side to side. Yeah. Um, and it really gives you an impression of how hard it is to be played tennis at by, by <laughs> Venus Williams, you know, yeah, for just sure. like trying to keep up with the ball as it's going and, and the ball is coming right at you. It's, um, that was a, that's a fantastic shot. It's my favorite, favorite part of the movie. But again, I didn't like it overly much at all. Um, I do. I, I will. You mentioned Andrew Ellis. I think, I think, I think she's terrific. And I think her story is maybe my favorite. Like I like the, the movies. Um, Cause there's like you're, what you're talking about. They're like, this is going to work. And then it works. It takes the tension out. Whereas I feel like one of the biggest sources of tension in the movie that I was able to actually like latch onto is Anjanu Ellis's faith 
as a, well, I guess in real life, they're Jehovah's witnesses. I don't think the movie ever says that. Yeah. I don't think so. That might be a little bit off putting to certain people, <laughs> but it's a general, it's a Christian faith. Yeah. Her, her, her faith and, and her observance and her practice of her faith, uh, requires her to be supportive of her husband right at least publicly and to see that that like the tension of like being a unified front and then trying to find a way after the coaches of the cameras have left to 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 counsel him or criticize him um that was some of my favorite stuff in the movie and i think angelo ellis um knocked that stuff out of the park and she has a great like coaching montage because there gets to be a point in the movie where Venus has like the high flying super fancy coach, but Serena doesn't. Serena's feeling all left out, and she just walks down like, "You're gonna work with me." And there's like this great montage of her like hustling Serena around the court, and like I was like, "I need a few more scenes of this. This is this is good stuff." Yeah. Um. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I'm not like gonna proclaim it's one of the best movies of the year or anything, but it, it satisfied a, a few base pleasures that tend to work for me. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned Will Smith and Angelina Ellis. The two coaches um, that we meet are played by Tony Goldwyn and John Bernthal. I think they're both very good. I think yeah, I really like cast. Tony Goldwyn especially. Yeah. Uh, all right, I, I forgot what's next on our, on our uh, list. Is it me? A film that no, I it's you. Okay. cannot quite pronounce. Uh, I think it's Lingi, the Sacred Bonds. So the the part I can't pronounce, the Lingi or whatever, is it just like literally translates to or is part of a, a language where this kind of is like. Con- a consolidated way of acknowledging the sacred bonds that exist amongst family members. Um, what language is it? What language is the movie in? Oh gosh. Who can say it's uh, from an African country. Okay. Let's I'll, find out. You know what? You, you go ahead and talk. I'll find out. You're going to figure it out. Terrific. Yeah. Um, well, this is a language is spoken French. <laughs> okay, well, I, don't, I don't know. If I, trust. I, I, I feel like it's at least more specific than that. Oh, this says, uh, in French and Chadian Arabic, Arabic. Oh, okay, because it takes place in Chad. Yes. Okay. So they speak the Chadian version of Arabic. There we go. Uh, all right, glad we solved that. So, um, basic plot involves around a uh, teenage girl, about fifteen, um, who uh, finds herself pregnant and seeks an abortion, and her mother, who is. Oh, did you do that on purpose? <laughs> what the uh, the two pregnancy movies or the two abortion movies i'm just keyed in to feminist issues david and i saw cow (laughs) (laughs) nailed it um no i i just had a you know as with a lot of things sometimes you just have a hole in your schedule and you look around and you try to figure out what looks good this looked good um young woman or not young woman girl um who definitely does not want to be pregnant um, definitely wants an abortion and who as with happening lives in this society this one much more contemporary that um, does not allow for such things and I, I think it starts out pretty strong there's some great kind of tension between her and her mother and eventually her mother coming around to helping her um, I think it's the rare movie that's maybe too short it um, seems to skip over some key dramatic developments or some scenes that we could have used more time to kind of dwell in a little bit more. Um, the whole process that they have to go through, I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with them finding a relatively easy way to find an illegal abortion. That's great. Uh, dramatically speaking, however, there's less to kind of sink your teeth into and more kind of 
contrivances to create complications and fewer kind of moments where they can really kind of sit in the drama. The, the few times when they do, you know, there, there's a great kind of sub subplot of uh, the mother trying to reconnect with her sister who for various reasons, the, the mother was kind of cast out of her family when she was much younger. Um, and the sister has kind of gone on to a pretty fulfilling life in a lot of regards and a pretty affluent one. Um, and the way that they eventually reconnect is, is pretty touching. Um, but for the most part, it's just like, it, there wasn't enough kind of drama to kind of hook me and in, in sink in with me. Uh, all right. It seems like uh, all our disappointments are in the middle here. Um, oh, I've got a big disappointment at the end. Don't you worry. Okay. Well, I, um, next up on the disappointment train um, is a, a Brazilian film, Anita Rocha de Silveira's Medusa. And I had, I had heard, I had read good things about this one. Um, like you said, one of those European festivals. I can't remember. Um, or even it might have even been TIFF. Um, but whatever it was, uh, I had read good things about this one. And there are definitely. Uh, some really exciting uh, things uh, about the movie. And maybe it's a, it's a, the kind of thing where the more I, more distance I get from the movie in, in the years to come, I um, will just remember the good parts, uh, which includes some uh, horror adjacent stuff, including one shot in particular that like was legitimately like goosebump inducing. Um, but uh, the, the, I, I saw Medusa because it came down. I was like, Oh, I've read good things about this one. I also sundown is playing the same, like the same evening. I have a history of seeing Michelle Franco movies at AFI fest, but unfortunately the last Michelle Franco movie I saw at AFI fest was new order last year and I hated it. So I don't, I don't, I haven't forgiven him yet. So I decided to go with Medusa untested. I, Probably still better than Sundown. Um, I don't know if that's true. I haven't, I haven't really, I don't know anyone who's seen Sundown, so I uh, don't know what the consensus is. But um, Medusa takes place in a um, in in Brazil. In uh, it looks like a like a a, a suburb um, of I don't know if it's Sao Paulo, Rio, or another city. Um, and so here's already where I start to get. Uh, lost with with this movie this suburb is or at least it's from the point of view of christian youth who are they're like the queen bees the mean girls or whatever or and the and the boys too of the of of this suburb they run in packs and they like seemingly everyone in town knows who they are or whatever uh but what they also do is they put on masks at night and they go find young women they think are of loose morals. They attack them and beat them and then make iPhone, like cell phone videos of them accepting Christ while they're all like bloody and, and crying. And I think this is where the movie kind of uh, loses me a little bit is because it feels like it's supposed to be satire and it doesn't, actually feel like satire like it, it i feel like there's a there's a tone with this kind of with this stuff that that uh de Silvera is is going for that she doesn't quite reach whereas mixing the reality and the horror fantasy stuff that also happens in the movie does work but i kept getting pulled out by like come on <laughs> uh this is too ridiculous uh for me whereas um i thought of a very different movie 
bad luck banging, which comes out uh, this week is out by the time you're hearing this podcast. Um, is another movie that I think very effectively sort of um, and very incisively uh, uncovers the, the, the way that people who are the most eager and most willing to judge others are also the people who are spending the least time <laughs> looking at themselves. Um, I think that comes across way better in bad luck banging, uh, even though it's a totally different thing um, than, than, than Medusa, where it just seemed like it reminded me of uh Oh shit! What was the movie with Macaulay Culkin? The Saved. Do you ever Saved? All too well. Yeah, a little too, little too pleased with itself. Yeah, extremely pleased with itself. Yeah, which is too bad because I, I'm focusing on the bad stuff about Medusa, but there's also there's also this other thing where there's this this woman who was like a model, or whatever, and was uh, famously like promiscuous and 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 some sort of like precursor of these girls threw acid in her face or set her face on fire or something in, in public. And the woman went into hiding and the two like leaders of the, this girl, Christian girl gang or whatever are like dead set on finding this actress. Um, uh, uh, and, and that gets into this, like they're going into like the basement of like creaky old hospitals and stuff. So there's like the, the, the horror stuff that comes in there is, uh, is good. Enough. And there's, obviously things that I'm not telling you about uh, places that it goes that I, that I like. Um, I guess at, at over two hours, um, there's plenty of stuff in this movie that maybe could have been cut down, uh, and focused more on the stuff that worked. Sure. All right. So, um, Oh, now we get to talk about, uh, I think our shared favorite movie of the festival. Oh, uh, is it? No, it's not for me. Oh, it is mine. It's up there for me for sure. Uh, it's yeah. cool's memor- Memoria or Memoria. Uh, I have heard it pronounced Memoria by I would think people who would know. Okay, Memoria then. Um, yeah, a Colombian film directed by a Thai director and starring Tilda Swinton, who has no nationality, as we know. Right. Uh, well, I just talked about Medusa. Why, why don't you talk about Memoria a little bit? Oh, sure. Give me the hard one. Um, so, oh, okay. Here's what I'll, you know what, here's what I'll start talking about is that the, uh, the movie is inspired by, uh, about of what's colloquially known as exploding head syndrome. Yeah. So I which, didn't know that. And, uh, that was an alarming thing to hear in the introduction of the festival there to just like casually throw out and be like, and this was the latest film from renowned director, Pitchbone, where it's called, uh, starring renowned actress Tilda Swinton. Um, he was inspired by a bout he had of exploding head syndrome. Hope you enjoy it. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Several yeah. steps back. Uh, I, ha- I had also, I had never heard that term before. No. But as soon as it started, I realized like, oh, I've had this. This is, oh, like, really? But it's. In the movie, it follows her into her waking life, which is not my experience. And from what I've read is not, yeah, not, not uh, common. The, the common experience. It's a thing where we're like, it's often like just as you're drifting off to sleep, suddenly you hear like a whoop, just a very loud boom. And it, and it always, it, it wakes me up. And it's happened to me, uh, occasionally throughout my life. Um, huh. uh, uh, but it's the weird thing is see in the movie, she gets up and she investigates the sound in my experience. Like it's very startling and it wakes me up, but I also know immediately as soon as I'm awake, like that's, that was a hallucination. It's not real. So, but, um, this, 
uh, extrapolates exploding hydrogen into something that is actually like plaguing Tilda Swinton as she's going through her daily life. Yeah, I, I, I think for cinematic purposes, it would be less interesting if she was like, oh, right, that annoying sound I hear from time to time at night. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't meant to be sleep. a criticism, just, yeah. <laughs> just meant to like delineate between the, the fictional version of exploding head syndrome. Yeah. So the, the film first shot is just of a window. It's like dusk or something. I don't know. Night ish. And suddenly we hear that boom. And, uh, you know, for those of us who have seen our fair share of we're aesthetical movies, you're not expecting a loud boom at the start of one of his films, right. uh, as unnerving as they can often be. It's more in a kind of a subtle way, less than kind of a, loud bangy jump on scary kind of way so uh that that woke me good enough and uh sets the stage for uh so this one's character her name's jessica um she's visiting columbia for some vaguely academic purpose i want to say well okay i got confused about because later in the movie she says she lives in medellin mm. so i think she's visiting this city where gotcha. her sister lives but right. she, I think she and her sister are both British expats living in Columbia. They just live in different cities. Okay. That's, yeah, that was my impression. That sure. That makes sense. I didn't catch a particular line. I just could tell she was a little out of place and she seemed to be visiting. And a lot of the film is very much about like the experience of being a foreigner in a, a city, which I think they draw very well. And which this kind of like exploding head syndrome of these sounds setting off kind of further, set her apart from the people around her, especially by the time that we like dig into like, I don't know the extent to which the film clarifies where the sounds are coming from and kind of the deeper roots they have within Columbia, um, or at least the deeper way that certain reverberations continue throughout uh, a country or society. Um, it kind of sets her up to be like more keyed into certain environmental aspects, which is, you know, so you get these shots of her like wandering around cities or like looking at certain landscapes and clearly being a little bit more invested or a little bit more unsettled by otherwise ordinary things. And we're assessing call as frequent cinematographer, uh, Suyumbu Mukdipram, I'm going to say, um, are very good at kind of making strange, um, relatively normal settings. You know, a lot of their films are set in familiar urban or rural environments. Um, I think especially about syndrome is a century, which is takes place mostly at a hospital, but which is like almost an alien spaceship, the way they shoot it. Um, they're very good at kind of drawing out these strangeness of places that suit well suits. I, I think the experience of traveling abroad, it's cool that he got out of Thailand um, to see where else he could kind of, uh, explore this sort of emotion because a lot of films are kind of rooted in very much Thai culture, Thai history, especially, and the legacy of certain governments have gone through Thailand and actions that are taken there, place there. Um, and here, it it's really a lot about like finding those same things in a foreign place and um, how un unnerving that can be. You know, it's hard to dig into more without digging into the last like I'd say twenty to thirty minutes, which are really kind of more invested in that and which play with sound in really invigorating and exciting and unnerving and occasionally scary ways. Um, but the film on a whole is like super invigorating and really, really, really strong. Uh, yeah. It, it's, um, uh, how do you say that it's a word that means, I guess it could just be non-pretentious and say dreamlike, but we know the one like oneric, oneric. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, um, 
this, I mean, you mentioned being very tired at drive my car. I was kind of tired during my morning, but it felt right. It felt right to be sort of like, um, uh, maybe a little bit close to sleep, sure. <laughs> especially in the early parts of the movie where, where it's a lot of her, um, wandering around and sort of being confused, but also like you're talking about that, that, uh, outsider thing and, and, and her reticence to like, maybe I like something confusing is happening, but maybe it's me. So I'm going to like, not, uh, not say anything, which, which leads to a lot of, there's a surprising a number of laughs in, in the movie. Yeah. I was going to say the same. Um, yeah. With the, when she's looking for the guy at the sound studio and he's not there and she's just like lingering in the doorway, <laughs> like not knowing what to do. Um, or when she, earlier finds the guy in the sound studio and is like occasionally unnerved by the way the levers move throughout the oh, yeah. soundboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of, I would say my, uh, the funniest line in the movie though, or the funniest exchange in the movie is when uh, I won't give any context cause it's later in the movie, but he she says, how was it? What death? Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I also enjoyed the scene at the restaurant where she's yeah, trying yeah. to have dinner with some colleagues or friends or I can't remember the connection. That's uh, her sister. That was her sister. See? Yeah. That was the same sister. She visited her sister in the hospital. Didn't know the it, sister got better. Yeah. They, they're talking about it in the, in the, <laughs> this might've been my driftier part of the movie. You mentioned being oh, yeah. a little tired. I, I think I was a little tired during the, that part of the movie, but um, because she says in the hospital, she says that she thinks she might be sick because a dog cursed her. Oh yeah. <laughs> but then at the dinner table, she's saying that she might be sick because she's researching some like uncontacted people and they might have cursed her. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it's the same, same character, but there that's where like, she's having this otherwise normal conversation, but she's hearing the booms kind of frequently. Yeah. And she's still trying to like carry on a normal conversation, not seem like an insane person who's hearing loud noises. And so one point, like after the boom, she's like, I haven't even looked at the menu. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to just like uh, recount things that happened in, in the movie, but um, I also don't know how to, uh, uh, I, I, I think I'll need to spend more time ruminating on it to, to, put into words uh why it moved me yeah so for much. sure i mean it's so experiential that it's hard not to get caught up in just recounting various moments and so much of yeah. the quality of it i mean kind of like cow I, I mean i think memoria becomes a little bit more obvious about what it's doing but kind of like cow it's not terribly interested in firmly explicating a lot of things that go on it's just like suggesting things and creating psychological spaces and uh, uh, what's the word? I guess kind of like creating, uh, instigating reactions from the audience and whatever those reactions might be, you know, there's not like a command that you experience the movie in the same way. And, uh, this is why, I mean, I, I'm sure you will disagree with me on this, but this is why I'm glad that Neon is releasing it as it is, as a theatrical only affair, um, playing in one city a week, they say, you know, until they run out of place to book basically, um, so that you can kind of get, uh, an audience who's keying into different parts of the movie than maybe you are. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I am sympathetic to people who are like, won't get to see this until after 2021 when it's, when it's on, it'll be on a lot of top 10 lists for certain people. I'm sure, um, uh, in, in 2021, and I know for for certain viewers in other parts of the country, it might be like, it might feel like, Oh, I'm getting to see it after it happened. 
Do you know yeah, I mean? but that's that's I mean, I grew up in Portland and I'd read about whatever, you know, festival favorite got a qualifying run the last week of December and wouldn't come out into Portland until like March or April or whatever. Yeah, no, and I know it's, it's a yeah, it's it's a common experience. And that's why I'm saying I'm not opposed to it. I'm just I understand that there are people who are gonna be bummed about that and I sympathize with them, but I don't think that that means that Neon is doing anything wrong. Sure. Uh, um, all of which is to say, definitely seek it out um, yeah. if and when you can. Uh, I do hope that the model of distribution means it can go to more cities and so more people can experience it that way, even if it is on an unusual timeline. I don't I don't think they'll stick to their guns and never release it on home video. Um, but I, I'm excited by the way they're playing with distribution strategies in a way um, that you know, we're in time right now where distribution strategies need to be challenged. And this is an interesting kind of gambit. And making a movie like this an event will probably be a benefit to the smaller theaters at which it, like the independent theaters at which it plays. Yeah, I would, I would hope so. I mean, I think it benefits the film too. It gives it a distinct profile and that's always my concern with streaming only or any kind of distribution pattern is, are we spotlighting the film? Are we giving it a platform in which it can be known and talked about, you know, as we all know, after years of going through the cycle, just because something is on Netflix and everyone can see it doesn't mean anyone watches it. You know, Uh, it's important to find ways to give films a public profile and a a platform, which not necessarily they can succeed financially, but make an impression. Yeah. I think about that with like, um, because I do uh, for film independent, I do the, the, the someone we watch column where I, like look at someone who won the someone to watch award at, at the independent spirit awards. And I compare that film with whatever their most recent film is. And I was thinking, I think the first one I ever did was Adam Leon who made a movie called give me the loot that I remember hearing a lot about um, when it came out and that's what he won the award for. And then his follow-up is called tramps and it's a very good movie, but it's a Netflix movie and it just, it becomes like anonymous content. Like yeah. no one, no one talks about trance, which is unfortunate because it's, it is a good, it's not quite give me the loot good, but it is a very good movie, but it just, it's a Netflix movie. It's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not real to, uh, <laughs> to a lot of people, you know? Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to, uh, uh, Jacques Odiard returns to France after that's right. Making sisters, brothers in America. And D- I didn't see deep on, but that's Sri Lanka. I think. Yeah. So uh, he has returned to France to make a movie called Paris 13th district, or I guess the French title is Les Olympiades, which I'm guessing is the name of that neighborhood. Um, or the nickname yeah, of that neighborhood. That, I was probably. trying to look up where that came from, but I can't um, really find any firm ground. And uh, I'm going to get right in, out in front of uh, you here and say, I loved this. I liked it a lot. I, I would be interested to hear off the bat why you loved it. Uh, because of the three characters <laughs> it sounds like a dumb yeah. like no they're um, totally. uh uh like very i don't know juvenile way to say like i liked the movie because i like the characters but it really is it's a it's a it's a love triangle movie um in its in its own way uh but it is three very distinct characters giving three fantastic performances and not the most important thing when you're going to make a movie about relationships between people is chemistry between the actors. And, uh, I, I believe all of the entanglements and the resentments and the lust and the longing and, uh, uh, the hesitation, I believe everything that is in the air between any two of these people at any, at any given time. Um, the, the, the movie's also in uh, a very nice looking black and white. Um, 
and and I think uh, is it moves along in a, at a at a well edited pace. But uh, really, I I just see it as a showcase for um, uh, a movie about interpersonal relationships uh, that are very specific, but of course always very universal too. Yeah, for sure. They're very, I think very distinct characters and it's, I was kind of tempted not to comment on that because from a social perspective, they're not characters you see often in movies. You know, it's uh, a French speaking Chinese woman, a French speaking black man. And um, then it, yeah, for good measure, I guess a French speaking French white woman, a white lady. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but who has a very distinct storyline? I would say more distinct than the other two. Um, who kind of you know, the first two kind of fall into the familiar French pattern of "I love you, I hate you, I sleeping with you, I'm not sleeping with you" kind of stuff. Um, but because of their cultural background, because of their um, economic and social circumstances, it gives specificity to their um, world in a way that you know every other kind of French new wave post French new ripoff kind of doesn't necessarily have, you know, I, I like um, the films of, Oh shit. What's his name? Um, who made like the salt of my tears? Sleep Grell. Um, oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I like Fruit girls films a lot, but they are very much like white people kind of loving each other, mostly sexing each other and kind of having unclear emotions about that kind of stuff. You know, he falls into a, an archetype we all understand and see. Um, but Odiard is interested in exploring the way that those same kind of archetypal relationships play out in different types of communities and the way that their, those people's life circumstances, uh, complicate those relationships even further, um, which is all super strong. And yeah, I mean, Naomi Berlant's, uh, storyline where she, uh, is mistaken for a, uh, like oh, a cam girl. Yeah. Like a cam girl. That's exactly the word. Um, yeah is at first just kind of like amusing and then kind of horrifying as she gets kind of like uh, bullied at the college she's going to for it. Um, and then uh, turns into something kind of sweet as the two of them uh, start to bond. Um, it, it, yeah, it's an unusually structured movie and that will, you know, her character doesn't get even introduced until probably at least a half hour into the film or something. Um, and then it kind yeah. of bounces around the three of them in various ways, but I, yeah, I, I do think it's very well done. I, for whatever reason, it's just like, didn't hit that last line of really like to like, absolutely love kind of thing for me. And it's probably just a certain alchemy. Uh, you might, you may think of something that I hadn't even really thought about, which is, um, that Nomi Merlant is playing the white woman and the other two are, are, uh, French people, but French people of, of, of color. Um, we, unless I'm mistaken, we don't meet, Naomi Merlant's family, but we meet the other two. Yeah, that's a good point. We, we meet older generations um, of of the other two uh, uh, families, and um, that's a, a different level of of tension. That like these um, this woman and this and this the 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 Chinese French woman and the and the black French man like both are members of a community that they are not like in step with necessarily in ways that often make them look bad. I, I, I like that about the movie that the, the, the characters are often um, do things that if I knew them in real life, I would find oh yeah uh, for sure. off, like off putting enough. That I would probably not be friends with that person anymore. But um, uh, uh, I, I, so I, there's a, there's another level of, of, of tension there with, uh, with family and generations um, 
that I guess Nomi Merlant doesn't have because she's the like like basically she's the default French person in sure. people's minds, you know. Don't need to go any further than that. Um yeah, and there's like detail, you know, some of the details are kind of like found upon like I think um Emily, uh the Chinese French woman, her, her relationship with her sister and her place in their family structure is very clearly explicated. I think Camille, uh, the black man is, uh, he, there's a lot of details about it, his familial situation. They're really fascinating. Like the fact that he has a much younger sister mm-hmm. um, who he sees regularly, but you know, clearly they didn't grow up together. They're probably at least 15 years apart in age. Um, and then, but they share a father who neither of them seem to totally get along with, but he's like trying to make an effort there. And there's all these kind of like, subtextual details that aren't clarified but which kind of draw more attention out of the situation all right well let's move on to another french film uh celine siama's petite maman um i liked it yeah i i actually loved it i i oh, okay. even preferred it to portrait of lady on fire siama's last film and definitely to any film she made before that i i wasn't too big on celine siama pre uh portrait of lady on fire but um i don't think i've seen any of her she did stuff. girlhood oh okay and and tomboy tomboy which i didn't see yeah. i didn't and... see either one of those but i remember definitely those were on yeah my radar and she made a film called water lilies that uh, didn't make too much of a splash um but which is fine uh it's an okay movie but uh obviously portrait landed fire was a pretty galvanizing moment and one of those movies a lot of people really flocked to and understandably why like i really love portrait landed fire i'm not trying to knock it at all i just think petite maman is a more inventive premise and less kind of, uh, I don't know what to say about this. Like there's a sense in which portrait of Lady and fire is kind of into itself of like what it's doing and like the kind of cinematic stuff it's pulling off. I thought about this. Uh, I was listening to a podcast interview with Ethan Hawke recently, and he talked about showing, I think his first film or a film he was working on to Sidney Lumet while he's still alive. And, after Lament watched it, he was like, what do you, what did you think of this scene? And Lament was like, I knew you were going to ask me about that scene. Cause that was the most directed scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's a sense in which I think portrait lady on fire is, uh, you know, it, it's her trying to make a statement. I understand me. So, and I don't hold that against the film. I think it's again, a marvelous film, but I think Petit Maman is a more confident uh, film where she's really uh, summoned her talents and more assumptive of them and lets, um, the film kind of play at its own measured pace and doesn't need as much to kind of, uh, adorn that. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I think you use the word confident, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's not actually technically literally a kid's movie, but it, it's about kids yeah. and it feels like a kid's movie. It's short, like a kid's movie. <laughs> um, and it has, um, an openness to discovery. I think, um, that I, that I associate with a kid's sense of play. I think um, you could show it to kids for what it's worth. When you say it's not a kid's movie, I think it's only because of like some commercial prospects. I don't recall anything terribly yeah. off-putting. About no, I, no, I'm not saying it would be inappropriate for kids, but there yeah. are, I think there are parts of the movie that, most kids that a lot of kids would be very bored by. It's oh, I'm, for sure. But saying. I, you know, I think but, if you showed it to a younger kid who didn't really understand what was going on, he was just kind of on in the background. It would form a sort of lasting impression that later in later okay. years, they'd be like, that was kind of an interesting movie. I saw when I was a kid. 
All right. That's a very specific, uh, uh, very specific person well, you're, you're dreaming up. No, no, I, I don't think I'm necessarily dreaming up. Like my mom texted me recently out of the blue. She was scrolling through French movies to watch. And she's like, Oh, you remember watching the red balloon as a kid? I'm like, yeah, I remember watching the red balloon. As yeah. a kid. I was on board by it because you know, it's the red balloon, but it kind of formed a lasting impression that probably made a difference in my life. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, you know what, let's start showing Petit Maman to, Hell yeah. to, to kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We haven't really talked about the, the, the story, but um, well, I think that's good. I, I don't want to dig into what it's really about. I mean, I, like Lucy, you can say it's about a young girl getting to know her mother better. And, I, but I don't think the way, in, I think the way in which it does that was at least for me quite surprising and quite uh, fun to tease out. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go with a different, uh, uh, a different tack and explain the movie but i sure. if i if i said my thing and then you said your thing people will be able to put things together that i don't Fair want enough. to put together i want them to discover uh uh on their own but uh i'll say um i was talking about uh not running into friends as much at the festival but i did talk to our uh mutual friend dory uh she's never never been on the podcast podcast listeners don't know her, but, uh, uh <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah, I liked petite Maman. And she was like, Oh, I'll put that on my list. And I was like, yeah, it's very sweet. And she was like, Oh, and I was like, it's about, <laughs> and I was like, it's about two cute little kids. And she was like, Nope. <laughs> so if you are opposed to, uh, sweet, cute movies, maybe then you, uh, I suppose uh, so. Uh, steer clear petite Maman. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely liked it. It didn't cast the spell over me that uh, it did to you, but I, I liked it. Um, I'm just going to acknowledge uh, Nina Thyberg's pleasure um, okay. because it's a, it's a good movie, but listeners who have long memories remember that I saw it at Sundance and I, oh, sure, uh, sure. It, um, uh, I think Angie and I talked about uh, pleasure. Um, so yeah, de- definitely check it out. It's a uh, Swedish movie about a, uh, it takes place in a man in Los Angeles. It's about a, a Swedish girl who comes to Los Angeles to follow her dream of becoming a porn star. Angie and David talking about pleasure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right. You're up next. Uh, yeah. Um, I also saw Jane Campion's the power of the dog, um, which is one of the big award season releases, highly anticipated, understandably. So uh, Jane Campion hasn't made a feature film in 12 years um, since bright star. Of course, she did two seasons, I think just two of Top of the Lake, um, which I did not watch, but which I heard was quite good. Um, This is an adaptation of a novel by Thomas Savage about a uh, rancher played by Benedict Cumberbatch um, named Phil Burbank, which, um, you know, if you're watching a film with a Los Angeles based audience, repeatedly hearing characters say Mr. Burbank is going to produce like at least a slight like kind of titter, if not outright laughter um, from time to time, especially when his brother uh, is played by Jesse Plemons, who, uh, you know, Jesse Plemons is a fantastic actor, but he's very good at making himself look silly. Um, And so the two of them being equals, he is also referred to as Mr. Burbank throughout the film. And he's just sitting there proud as a, I don't know what the the phrase is, but uh, proud as can be with his clean new suit. Uh, looking ever much like someone who would be called Mr. Burbank, um, which is a very amusing sight to see. Uh, so the two of them have been cattle ranchers for some time. Um, Jesse Plemons' character, George, is clearly looking to get off the range and do fewer long cattle drives and kind of settle into society life. Um, and as part of that, he proposes to and quickly marries um, Kirsten Dunst's character uh, named Rose, 
She is um, a widow and runs kind of a restaurant saloon, kind of not quite saloon, more of a restaurant, a uh, general store kind of area um, along with her teenage son, Peter, played by Cody Smith. Um, and as you would expect from this sort of setup of like old West uh, brother dynamic brings in a pretty young wife sets off a uh, very series of dramas um, between all four of them, which Jane Campion teases out in ways that are sometimes confounding and mysterious and then suddenly clarifying. And you're like, Oh shit, that's what that meant. Um, and so it's a lot of uh, passages where you're not sure why you're watching something only for it to be clarified later and becomes all the more thrilling because of that. And there's a, uh, sexual tension between not only uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's character and Kirsten Dunst's character, but also Cumberbatch's character and Cody McPhee's character um, that is uh, really curious and interesting and involving. And there are sections of the film that, you know, contrary to what I was saying earlier about uh, Lingy, the Sacred Bonds, um, sections of this film where it's very purposefully alighting um, characters uh changes and the way they have shifted thinking about one another and regarding each other and you're sitting there purposely questioning why those shifts have occurred and finding out through the course of the film you know some things that might have caused that uh purposely being cage about where the plot goes from there because like i said there's all these kind of details that add up that are part of the experience and part of the thrill of watching the film it is of course extremely well acted i mean i i as we talked a couple of weeks ago i'm a major major kirsten dunce fan and this is as good a role as she's had before. Um, she is not a not an actress given to um, pride in a lot of ways. She doesn't feel the need to make Rose to be a strong, defiant woman who's going against the times in which she lives. She, she finds, uh, rightly so, I think that there's more drama in how limiting Rose's circumstances are and how limiting the mindset of the time is to just like, try to be a good housewife, try to please their man and try to uh, run a good household and kind of how terrifying it is to be locked into that. You know, uh, Jesse Plemons character buys her a piano towards the beginning of the film because he has this vague notion that she knows how to play the piano. She doesn't really know how to play the piano that well. She apparently were told played for silent pictures at one point, which is, you know, step up from honky tonk. Um, at least in those times, you're just trying to play just to fill the air. Um and so he has this note that she's going to like give concerts for the governor. And so she's sitting there practicing and failing and not succeeding and being herself up about it. And there's no sense in which Kirsten Dunn's performance suggests that she's going to like rebel against this. She's just trapped. And this is kind of like, she won the lottery ticket in a lot of ways. She's married to a wealthy man who will set her up for life, but this isn't a circumstance where she will ever be really all that fulfilled. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, I've never been, crazy about as an actor but i think this is a really strong role for him um it's a character that is trying to at all times appear super confident and super strong um the kind of background of his character is we get the impression that he was educated at some point and just decided he liked the rancher life better and so he has this kind of erudite way of speaking mixed with um at one point there's a confrontation over how often he bathes and he enjoys not bathing. Um, so he has a, an earthy quality too, that uh, provides a, a good kind of counterbalance where he's very clever and very whip smart and also knows how to run the hell out of farm. So he's a very kind of formidable uh, figure within the film, but 
Cumberbatch is really good at kind of suggesting a sort of discomfort with this role and that he's always trying to put on airs and trying to seem like this rugged, tough guy that maybe underneath he really isn't. Um, yeah, it's a, a really extraordinary film. It's also, uh, I wanted to call it the production design by Grant Major, who is the production designer on Lord of the Rings. Um, and it has shifted his career all up and down the scale since then. But uh, much of the kind of drama of the film takes place around this house and it's a very well-built house and has kind of a strong, you know, you hate to say a place as a character, but it has a strong presence within the film. Let's just say. Uh, all right. I'm going to move on to uh, uh, Robert Greene's procession, um, which I actually watched at, at home. Um, I didn't see Kate plays Christine, but that and Bisbee 17 both have this, uh, preoccupation or, or this interest in people acting things out, like getting closer to something by acting it out. You know, Kate plays Christine is about someone is a document about someone preparing for an actor, preparing for a role that doesn't actually exist. It's just the, uh, the documentary. And then Bisbee 17, um, which I know you saw, right. Um, is about the, said the hundred year anniversary of a terrible thing that happened in Bisbee, Arizona and getting all the townspeople to, uh, play roles and, and, and do recreations, uh, procession. I'm going to say is like I said, I didn't see Kate plays Christine. I liked Bisbee 17 a lot. I think procession is even better partially because it, it, it has a very similar, um, uh, uh, avenue. It takes a very similar Avenue, but in this case, Robert Greene is directing the movie procession, but he's not the one directing these, these these reenactments or or these things mm. basically the movie is about um uh a, a group of now middle-aged men uh in kansas city missouri uh who were uh, as children um victims of pedophile priests and they are working with a drama therapist to sort of write short films to help to uh, about their experience, to help sort of process their experience. And, and I don't, uh, they, you see the short films in, within the film and Robert Green directed those, but my, at least the impression the movie gets is that this is procession is less a documentary about sexual abuse in the Catholic church and more a documentary about drama therapy. <laughs> uh because that's that's really what he's documenting is is this process and some of it you know some of the stuff that these men go through is uh it's very raw and very hard it's a, it's as the movie is as upsetting as you might expect a documentary about children who you know people who are abused as children sexually abused as children uh to be um but he's he he's even more of a he feels like even more of a fly on the wall mm. um and, and uh and I, I, I really, uh, definitely, you know, there's, I feel like people who love movies, at least in the way that you and I do, there's two different main camps of movies about movie making. Sure. There's the like self-congratulatory camp, <laughs> which some of those I like, Sure. you know, I mean, I didn't really like Mank, but there there's there's that sort of like uh burnishing the legend type of movies on filmmaking and then there are movies that are uh about filmmaking because they're just about the idea that 
the 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 director directing films isn't enough they have to constantly be thinking about uh <laughs> what it means to 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 make a a, a film i think uh, and some of these movies aren't even legitimately about or, or literally about filmmaking like uh, welcome to marwin i think is a movie that's about filmmaking sure. in a lot of in a lot of ways in a way that i like and then it has the requisite stupid ass Robert Zemeckis ending that really sours me on it. <laughs> um, but up until that, I liked welcome to Marwin. Um, and, uh, and, and, and this, uh, this idea where these men who are not, um, artists to begin with, uh, or, well, one of them is a decorator, but they're not filmmakers to begin with, but the stuff that they come up with, is really inventive and, and really like, because it's coming from, uh, uh, because of the therapy, it's coming from someplace honest, you know, it's not the, 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 I've talked in the podcast before about movies that feel reverse engineered that I don't sure. like. Um, they come up with some, even not being steeped in the world of art film, they come up with some sort of like non-literal sort of dreamlike ways of, of, of exploring what they're, what they're uh they're they're going through um it's like the, there's one guy in particular who is he's so angry at the church all the time which is feels like it shouldn't be remarkable you'd think all of these men would be but he seems completely dominated by yeah his anger to the point where i'm like nothing he like whatever he writes is going to be like very one note because he can't get past this anger and he ends up making the angriest but also one of the most um imaginative and heartbreaking hmm. uh uh films in, in which you it starts at the you've got the child actor playing young him in the situation where he's going to be molested but then he crosses the room into where he's going to be molested and instead he's in the uh independent review hearing board with the catholic church about whether or not um the priest should be uh, excommunicated and then the guy the actual guy is playing his adult self, like protecting this young boy. And then he gets to go into his fucking awesome, angry tirade. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an invigorating piece of filmmaking within this film. That's about filmmaking as a way of, uh, uh, exercising demons. I think, um, I think it's, it's fantastic. It's definitely, it's not the documentary of the year for me, but it's, it's, it's up there. Um, yeah. Right I'll give it an A. All right. Uh, and then the, oh yeah, second documentary. Oh, I said there were only two documentaries. I watched, yeah, I was I gonna say because I forgot because I forgot that I didn't I didn't watch Procession at the festival, so I wasn't counting sure. it. Uh, Megan Mylan's Simple as Water, which is a uh, Megan Mylan made. Um, well, she won an Oscar for Smile Pinky, which was a short documentary that she made. But uh, I knew her from 2003's Lost Boys of Sudan, which is about uh, Sudanese refugees trying to make a life for themselves in the U.S. Uh, so we're back to refugees with simple as water. This is about Syrian refugees, um, four different families in different parts of there. You've got, you've got Athens, Pennsylvania, Turkey, and then you've got one, uh, family who's still in Syria. Um, and, uh, what's it, it's, it's really a movie about the pain of, of being a refugee that you, I guess you would think, if you think about it a very superficial way, like, oh, it's bad where they are. The fact that they left is, is good, but leaving your home and leaving where you're from means leaving people behind. It creates huge holes in your life. It puts you in a place where you don't, you are now living in a new place that doesn't, you have no connection to. It's a 
it's a painful adrift um lonely life and uh i think that's that's what simple water is is really uh focusing in on the um the what uh what separation in families um uh does even if it's for ostensibly a good uh reason but this is a um it's a no no talking heads no narration type of documentary there is one little bit of like um archival news footage that you see that could sort of constitute as an interview but it's not very uh it's not on screen very very long um this is mostly just a uh patient and like i said about celine sielma's uh filmmaking it feels open to discovery not it's not it didn't show up to say like i'm gonna tell people this this and this about syrian refugees it sounded like they're like like megan myland is is there as a sort of journalist there to yeah to learn from uh from these people and also um uh clearly at least in certain shots she's using at least two cameras if if not if not mm. more um which gives normal like dialogue scenes i, mean, I say scenes you know it's a documentary, but it makes them feel dramatic because right, yeah. she's doing like, like cutting back and you're seeing reactions and you're seeing people on either side of a conversation in their own, in their own shot. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I guess I was impressed that she was, it seems like that would make it a larger production, but she still seems like a very non-invasive documentary filmmaker. So yeah, I really like simple as water. Okay. We both saw the Sugua diaries, but um, I just talked about two movies. So why don't you start? Sure. Uh, speaking of films about filmmaking, um, this is a hard movie to describe. So yeah. there's, there's a plot kind of, but we're seeing that happen in reverse chronological order. But then before too long, also seeing scenes of them making that film in chronological order. Um, and the way they discuss those, that in relation seems to be like they understood this was the process going in. And it's one of those where like, you're not sure the extent to which the behind the scenes material is fabricated for the sake of the film. Um, and unlike, I think, you know, I like Robert Green mo- Green's movies pretty well. I think Bisbee is his most successful. I haven't seen Possession yet, um, but they tend to be very self-serious about the idea of filmmaking. This is very much like, it's a miracle any film gets made at all because it's a bunch of doofuses <laughs> arguing over petty shit and getting pissed off at each other all the time because they can't make their days because they're all fucking off all day. Um, yeah, the, there's a part when you said I don't know how much is scripted. There's one part that I feel like has to be scripted. Sure. When you're getting the the COVID like government advisors like running through them through all of the COVID protocols and he's like in full hazmat gear and then he opens it up to questions at the end. <laughs> And the sound guy just wants to talk about breakfast choices at crab yeah. services. <laughs> so good. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's, I post on Twitter. That's a pretty much vibe movie. And if you're just into like dumb confrontations like that, uh, kind of vague storytelling for the narrative portion of it. Um, and kind of like you know, the narrative portion about it is kind of vaguely surrounding these three people who seem to live in kind of a loose sexual relationship where they're traveling around together and trying to put up this farm. Um, so intersperse that with dumb confrontations about basic filmmaking processes or COVID relegation or rules or whatever. Um, 
all shot on 16 millimeter and like yeah. super saturated. So it looks super awesome and kind of beat up to like the scratch on the film and stuff. So I was just so into its vibe and its aesthetic and the minute to minute interactions that I almost don't have like a critical perspective on it because it was just so pleasurable throughout. Yeah. Well, we, we've gone long enough. Let's just say we, yeah, we both sure. uh, really enjoyed just sitting with this movie. Yeah. For, Sadly, it doesn't have distribution and I don't know how it would because it's so, uh, so strange. I mean, I could see like, I guess a cinema guild or a grasshopper picking it up. Yeah. Yeah. It is. You mentioned reverse chronological order. So it's like a, but it's not like memento where it's like each scene takes place before the last it's a day at a time. So you get a full day in chronological order and then you see the full previous day. Yeah. Um, yeah. It took me a while to, um, to realize what was happening when, when they start introducing the like making of the movie that we're watching in reverse or chronological order, it took me, a, it took me a couple of those days to like piece together what was happening. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. I think it's all me from here on, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. You've got two um, more. Yeah. So to uh, set things in proper alphabetical order uh, next is what do we see when we look at the sky? Um, so this has a very great um, film festival art house kind of title. <laughs> and a super great film festival kind of art house premise. Um, so it's a Georgian film, I want to say, or Turkish. One of those places uh, about these two people who meet up randomly a couple of times and kind of run into each other, have a friendly conversation, decide to, after the second meeting, to meet up again on purpose and kind of go on a date. You know, they kind of have this flirtatious banter and are like, hey, why, you know, uh, let's meet again. Or what's the phrase? Um we should meet it like this more often kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then the film does this super awesome thing where, uh, suddenly on screen, it just puts in huge block letters, audience, close your eyes. <laughs> and you are supposed to close your eyes. And then, uh, for the most part, um, it says you can reopen them when the sound chimes. And so you close your eyes and then some moments pass and then a sound chimes, you open them and, the actress you were looking at before who played the main character, Lisa is suddenly played by a different actress. And we learn uh, that the same thing has happened to the man. She meets Georgie. And so when they go to go on their date, they cannot recognize each other. Um, I'm nuts about this. I know. <laughs> I love it. That sounds uh, You may fare better with the ensuing two hours than I did. Uh, okay. <laughs> <I'll just> say, <laughs> uh, the rest of the film, I was considerably less into. Uh, um, it is Georgian. Yeah, <laughs> I Did forgot at first that you were clarifying my factual statement and not just saying like, well, it is Georgian. You know how they make movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, the Georgians are like, yeah. Um, I think like girl and the spider, it has a very strong aesthetic design. Unlike girl and the spider is less invested in drawing out strong performances that can kind of draw out these characters and more just uh, leaning very heavily on the aesthetic design to kind of tell its story. Um, in reading reactions to the film and I was excited to see the film because I'd heard it had gotten great acclaim and people were really into it. Um, so I might just be on my own here in terms of not vibing with it. It might be that there was too much soccer in the movie and I just don't care about soccer. There's a lot of goddamn soccer in the movie. Um, and there's a lot of Ted Lasso. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and there's a lot of just kind of scene repetition. Um, both of them were like doing previous jobs with as far as it's like weird curse that changed their appearance um they also like forgot how to do their job so they take on new more like uh customer service kind of attendant jobs and just kind of repetitions of those scenes over and over again 
Um, yeah, I mean, opposite of Sugar Diaries, I was was not vibing with uh, what what do we see when we look at the sky? It was laying down. Aside from the first thirty minutes, which are is pretty invigorating, has like I said that that great premise. Um, I think it wraps itself up well. Um, just you know, it's it's a lot of time to trudge through the rest. It being a full two and a half hour movie. And the last movie is not only the best movie I saw at the festival, but probably my favorite film of the year. It is uh, Joaquin Trier's The Worst Person in the World. Um, I'm very excited because earlier, um, way at the beginning of this episode, almost two hours ago, you said there was like a disappointment coming up toward the end. And I was afraid because I know you're a a Joachim Trier guy. I was afraid that it was going to be this movie. So I'm glad that it was quite the opposite. Um, Yeah, I've been on board with him um, since the beginning, since Reprise, which was 2008 or something. Mm. Um, He also, I think also August 31 is probably the film he's most known for. And I I liked Louder Than Bombs. It got kind of like a weirdly bad rap, but I thought it was really strong. The only one I, so I haven't seen either of his uh, Oslo trilogy ones that that you just mentioned, but um, I didn't like Louder Than the Bombs. That was my first um, introduction to him, but I really liked Thelma. Oh yeah. I almost forgot about Thelma, which I, that's probably my least favorite incidentally. Um, Maybe I should revisit it. I I remember it not being as involving as I suspected it would be based on the premise kind of thing. Um, But it's also one of those that I watched in like a flurry of end of the year screeners. So maybe I was just, you know, packing it in at a weird time. So I should, I should revisit it, especially because I, I mean, I think this is easily his strongest from the date, which is not any knock against his earlier work. Um, no. I just think it, it's, it's the rare film that comes along every now and again, that seems to capture the time in which we're living. It addresses a lot about the culture without being didactic about it. It um, acknowledges and is interested in exploring not only like perspectives on the modern era, but the way those perspectives uh, kind of infiltrate our day-to-day lives and affect the way that like the uh, inundation of information and complete access to the world around us uh, kind of uh, affects the way the decisions we make in our lives and how that affects our psychology and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's essentially around, it's essentially around Julie uh, played marvelously by a woman whose name I may remember pronouncing correctly named Renat uh, Ronsvi, um, who at the start of the film in kind of a flurry of French new wave esque narration uh, starts the film in medical school, trying to become a doctor uh, decides that she's not as into that uh, decides to become a, a psychiatry major, not as in that and decides to take up photography and then is only kind of into that at the point where she meets a famous, a semi-famous underground cartoonist and moves in with him and just kind of, proceeds to not do too much with her life and try to figure out what where to go from there. All that is covered in the first like five or 10 minutes or so. It's the prologue in a, I think, 12 chapter story. Um, oh, wow. It's one of those films that announces that it's, you know, a story in 12 chapters plus a prologue and a blog or whatever, which usually kind of annoys me, but which I think it uses to its advantage pretty well to tease out individual sections and to draw sometimes super, super funny things about its premise and sometimes unbelievably sad things and sometimes a really strong mixture of both you know there's a breakup scene in the middle of the movie um that is really as honest a breakup scene as i've ever seen where it's like she might be making the worst decision of her life or might be making the best decision and she doesn't she knows that and she doesn't really know anything else to do other than that she has to get out of this relationship and figure out what else is out there um 
and it ends with a super funny shot of the guy just standing there with his pants off and his penis just hanging out. Um, <laughs> oh, but forget, it, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. Right. Um, scene. it, yeah. So uh, it's one of those films that I, I can't help but kind of ramble about because it's tackling so much, but doing so, so successfully. And so movingly and so incisively about the culture without, like I said, coming to any strict conclusions about contemporary life. Um, it just seems to be taking it all in and trying to filter that it filter it through, or just trying to explore the way we exist now and the way relationships play out and um, kind of a generational, not only a generational shift, but I think a, a large cultural shift away from kind of a physical world into a more digital world and how that affects the way, frankly, that we appreciate art, you know, there's a late monologue where a character talks about when she was growing up, like, art would just be everywhere. It'd be in shops around you. You'd go to stores and be able to pick up comic books or books or um, see films or whatever. And increasingly those things become like kind of absent from our lives and we have less tangible connection to uh, the world around us. And by extension, kind of the people around us and perspectives and the way those things now exist only kind of in fleeting ways. And it's mournful of that without necessarily being condemning of what's taken us place either it's just like this is a shift that has happened it's worth acknowledging and exploring and kind of diving into um the title you you know you would think it kind of applies to julie because she's kind of a chaotic character who has some degree of self-loathing um but it ends up applying to this man she becomes kind of loosely romantically involved with um who there's a chapter of the film kind of exploring his story and where at the time he's in a relationship with a woman who's decided to turn her life around and become like super environmental and super uh conscientious of the way their decisions impact the world and it by extension just makes him feel like a terrible person because he wants to like take a longer bath one day or whatever um and their their scene where they first meet is one of the strongest sections of the film because they're both in relationships and they're determined not to cheat on their significant others. And so they try to figure out all the ways they can interact with each other that don't count as cheating. And it's really funny and super beautiful and kind of erotic in a lot of ways, but really touching. And it's one of the best kind of, it, it captures the same feeling as something like a before sunset where it's like at the, or before sunrise, where it's kind of at the edge of a relationship without kind of firmly diving in. Um, and yeah, I guess I've run out of things to say about it, but again, uh, cannot wait to watch it again. A really, really impressive film. And I was completely in awe of, um, yeah, I'm, it's very much on my, uh, on my to see list. I don't know which of the men you've talked about. He plays, but, uh, Anders Danielson Lee is also in this movie, according to the cast list, who was very recently, very good in Bergman Island. Yeah. But he's, Given, also, uh, he's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah. More of a showcase here, um, plays kind of a, more important character the proceedings um and yeah i mean knocks out park he, he's a marvelous actor and um, yeah, i'm really glad is. that trier keeps using him all right well uh we did it we we covered all the films that were worth uh seeing <laughs> everything else pile of trash the latest no, almodovar undoubtedly terrible yeah well the one i mean the one i really am sad that i uh missed but the scheduling with memoria just didn't make it feasible was the john yemo film one second which yeah which he made, so he already had a 2021 film called Cliffwalkers, but he made one second 
first and then the government didn't let him yeah like at the last second it. pulled it from its premiere yeah and then cliff walkers which i liked but is also like very much like a piece of propaganda <laughs> like yeah. it feels like i'll do this for you if you let me uh so i don't know why i don't know how uh bodlerized uh one second is from what it would have been had it had it yeah. premiered a couple of years ago but i'm still i'm a um, long-term, long, long-term listeners of this podcast know that I'm a long-term Zhang Yimo guy. Uh, so that was, that's, that's my biggest, like, uh, uh, wound that I did <laughs> in my not getting to see. That. I think if you'd been crazy and just ran from Memoria to go see it, you would have been fine, but you know, Memoria is a decent chunk of change itself. So that would have yeah. been a long stretch of film. Yeah. And I, yeah, I had to pee and I was hungry. Um, <laughs> Uh, what was I going to say? I also had, I have this experience with almost every festival I ever go to. I go to a festival. I spend days watching movies and movies and movies. I rack up a bunch of movies. And then the festival winners are announced and it's a bunch of shit. I didn't see. Yeah. Or completely. Didn't even hear. Of. Wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. yeah so the- I like uh, who's, who's seeing these movies and, and rating them five out of five. Well, yeah. And then when we were getting waiting to get into cow, another screen was letting out. And I was like, this is the one screening that was sold out. Like this is a clown car of people pouring out of this theater <laughs> for this movie. That wasn't on my radar at all. And yeah. I think we're just in a bubble, David. I, but I wonder where, what bubble are those people? in? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Where are they finding out about this movie that I haven't heard of? I always figure it's like, like a cultural center kind of thing that has a different outreach program than like a film centric kind of okay. thing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's see. You can find, uh, uh, I'm assuming some AFI Fest reviews uh, at battleshippretention.com. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm halfway, more than halfway through my first one. So it'll get posted probably tonight or tomorrow. Okay. Um, so you can find that at battleshippretention.com. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. Tell him what movies you think he should have seen. For some reason, if you want to contact that guy. Um, Follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Also check out my other podcast, The the One Where I Met Your Mother. It's a podcast where my wife and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother every week and uh, compare and contrast and talk about all sorts of things. We just wrapped up season one. Um, So all of those are available wherever you find podcasts, but also battleshippretension.com. Um... Scott, where, what, uh, where can people find you? What do you have to plug? Uh, nothing much. Twitter rail of tomorrow. Um, there will be AFI Fest reviews on the website by the time you uh, listen to this. So if for whatever reason you're like, I didn't get enough from that podcast. I need to, I need the written word. Uh, you can go find the written word at battleship retention.com. Um, that's about it. All right. Well, uh, Scott, thanks for doing this with me. Oh, yeah. I always enjoy talking about the festival. And it was a really invigorating uh, weekend of films. Yeah, I, I guess we should have we should have talked about this more. It was, uh, I, I feel like, because I've been back to the movies since yeah. the, the pandemic, but not to these kind of movies. Like, I, this was like a real reintroduction to world cinema that I had only been watching on screeners for a year and a half. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been mostly watching them on badly, horribly compressed screeners that pissed yeah. me off. Yeah, so, th- um, so this it was nice was... to get back into a theater and really soak it in. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, all right. Well, um, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.